So it's a great pleasure to welcome Peter Polner today. Um, Peter is a professor of philosophy at Warwick and works in many different areas. He's written on Nietzsche, on Husserl, Heidegger and Sartre and the whole phenomenological tradition. Um, and he always writes on very large themes, freedom, ethics, value, authenticity, no messing about, consciousness also. Currently, he's working on a project about intentionality, um, particularly the intentionality of emotion. And the paper that we're going to hear today is, I think, part of that broader project. So this is called Phenomenology and the Perceptual Model of Emotion. Thank you very much. Thank you very Peter. much, Sue. <coughs> Thanks for the generous introduction. Um, it's quite a long paper, um, and um, sometimes it's maybe a bit difficult to follow all the, the, the twists and turns of this. So I've produced a fairly detailed handout, and hopefully you'll be able to, to follow the, the trajectory of it um, by way of the handout. In the last decade or so, there's been a revival of an account of occurring conscious emotions as analogous and important ways to perceptual experiences or even as being such experiences. According to this view, emotional experiences in favorable circumstances disclose value properties to the subjects of those experiences, <clears throat> properties that are in the basic cases typically instantiated in the subject's environment. And usually, most of the literature, the properties in question are taken to be determinate or thick value properties. So the thought is that in an episode of indignation, about an unjust action that I'm witnessing, I may have or acquire a perceptual acquaintance <clears throat> with the action's injustice. In fear, I may have a perceptual experience of an object, objects or events, fearsomeness, in aesthetic admiration, I become acquainted with an object's determinate beauty, or I may become so, and so forth. If one is sympathetic to this construal of the basic cases of emotional experience, <clears throat> that is those cases in which the particular target of the emotion is itself directly present to the subject, I witness a cruel action, I see it, it's tempting to modify it slightly for other cases in which the target, the particular target, whatever that may be, an event, an object, person, person, third personally presented, in which the target is presented indirectly, for example, in verbally entertained belief or imagistic memory. And the modification, I mean, in fact, uh, the perceptualists usually say very little about these cases. And what I say is, is gestural more than anything as well. I'm going to be talking more about the, what I call the basic case, in which um, the target, the particular, is actually directly um, given to us, presented in sense experience. So the modification would be something like when I feel moved by the beauty of a piece of music that I recall, when I fear and anticipated anger, these affective experiences involve indirect, intuitive representations of the relevant evaluative properties. Representations that are parasitic on direct perceptual acquaintance. So in fearing an impending battle, the soldier imagines from the inside a direct encounter with the target of his fear, the enemy assault, in feeling moved by the recalled piece of music, I imagine 
the relevant evaluative properties of the music, as these would show up in direct auditory experience and so on. Um, now, there's a great deal that could be said about these indirect cases, but the, 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 the general, and I'm happy to talk about this in discussion, but the general picture here is um, that the perceptualists propose that these should be understood as parasitic um, or derivative of the, the cases where the target object is presented directly. And I call these latter the basic case emotional experience and the cases in which the target is presented or represented indirectly derivative. But why should one be tempted by this model of emotional experience at all? <coughs> now, most of the contemporary advocates appeal to phenological considerations about what it's like to undergo emotional experiences, and they draw attention to apparent close similarities between emotional experiences and paradigmatic perceptual experiences, such as sense perceptions. So they say both sense perceptions and emotions, or the basic case emotions, certainly, well, actually also other emotions, but certainly the basic case emotions, have intentional objects, they're about something. Both sense perceptions and basic case emotions seem to involve a direct access to distinctive ph phenomenal characteristics of those objects. And in the sense perceptual case, these might include the object shape, color, movement. In the emotional case, on the mainstream view, the properties accessed are thick evaluative properties, such as injustice, cruelty, determinants of beauty, and so forth. Both types of experience are partly, albeit not exclusively, passive or receptive experiences. Um, and finally, and very importantly, this has figured a lot heavily in the literature, um, both, while being intentional, seem to differ from judgments or beliefs in similar ways. Just as a subject in visual illusion can have a sense perceptual <coughs> experience as of something being thus and so, and simultaneously believe that it is not thus and so, without thereby having contradictory beliefs. So there can be recalcitrant emotions, such as phobic experiences, in which a subject affectively continues to, be, to experience a situation or object as terrifying, while simultaneously and with full conviction judging it to be harmless, without thereby evincing contradictory beliefs. So that's the, these are the kind of motivations that, that underlie a lot of the contemporary um, um, discussion sympathetic to that view. A qualified version of the perceptual model was um, canvassed in the early 20th century by the classical phenomenologi phenomenologists, most explicitly by Scheler and by Sartre. It was qualified in the sense that their view wasn't that all emotions are perceptual experiences as of specific values or derivatives of such. Um, but rather that intelligible emotions, emotions that make sense to the subject, are experiential encounters with value properties as such properties. And that some emotion types essentially involve perceptual experiences or derivative intuitive experiences as of value properties and objects. And by objects, the phenomenologists always mean something much broader than particular objects, include their use of Object also um, um, refers to events, 
um, objects, uh, sorry, uh, persons in their um, third personal aspect. Um, also property instances. So this qualified version of the perceptual model, the Shaler Sartre view, as I call it, um, seems to me to have better prospects than a global perceptualist account. And in, I'll just quickly reconstruct its motivations. Now, many of the current criticisms of the perceptual model seek to show that the model doesn't apply to any emotions at all. And if they go through, they obviously also invalidate the Shaler Sartre version. And I'll then address some of these objections and see how the Shaler disqualified perceptualism or whether it can um, answer these objections. So the considerations which Shaler and Sartre take to favor a qualified perceptualist account start from reflections about what's involved in grasp of everyday concepts of value and of specific values. And they claim that these value concepts, these everyday value concepts, are not fundamentally theoretical concepts, but are experientially grounded. What they refer to can be encountered in experience, typically. I can experience something as a value, or I can, indeed, I can experience a value in many cases. Um, moreover, an unprejudiced, unprejudiced description of what's, what it is to experientially encounter value or disvalue should acknowledge that in very many cases we experience these as properties qualifying particular objects. We experience such things as paintings, buildings, musical performances, the actions of other people as being valuable or disvaluable in determinate ways. Um, and this seems to be, this isn't, isn't just what phenomenologists call empty, i.e. symbolically mediated judgment, but it seems manifest in the experience itself. And the Shin and Sartre contain that what's experienced here isn't adequately described as a feature of a strictly subjective qualia-like aspect of the experience that might be characterized without adverting to apparent objectual properties. It's the music itself that strikes me as grand. The other person's comportment seems graceful. The colleague's reply itself strikes me as experientially mean-spirited or whatever. So when we try to grasp the nature of this kind of experience that they take as the, the sort of basic phenomenological datum that needs to be explained, um, more precisely, we find that it includes a component sometimes called valence, um, something like a felt approval or disapproval, a positive or a negatively uh, valenced attitude. And for the phenomenologists, understanding that this aspect is key to understanding the phenomenon of value. Unfortunately, the descriptions of it, while suggestive, are not terribly clear. So I've given you a passage from Scheler here, um, the first quote, um, where he says, values as values are experienced as efficacious or motivating. They attract or repel. And this doesn't just mean, as it might easily be misconstrued, we desire or abhor them, but merely in an urge-like manner. There's a clear difference between I'm hungry or I'm desirous of on the one hand, and that attraction or repulsion, which is experienced as coming from the valuable things themselves, and not like those occurrences that's pertaining to myself. Now, suggestive, as I said, but not very clear, because Sheila's talk here of experienced values as being efficacious and motivating, 
doesn't fully get to the heart of the matter because it says nothing about the justificatory or reason-giving dimension of value. But elsewhere he adds, in apparent clarification, it lies in the essence of values as objects that are distinct from the occurrences in which they are grasped, i.e. the experiences, for example, in which they're experienced, that they demand acknowledgement. And this point, this point is then taken up by Sartre in his dicta that values in actuality are demands by their nature they ought to be. And the idea gestured at here seems to be this. Experiencing something transparently as a value requires experience it, experiencing it as making a demand of some sort. But what kind of demand? Sartre has it that the value essentially demands to be, that is to be or to remain instantiated, actualized, if it is a positive value, presumably not to be, or to remain instantiated if it is a negative value. But in fact, even this talk of a demand here isn't um, falls short of what's needed. Grasping something as a demand is not the same as grasping that demand to be justified. But presumably when I experience something as a value and I take that experience at face value, I do take its demand to be justified. Scheler therefore, and Sartre occasionally also therefore, speak more helpfully in other places of an ideal ought to be, which attaches or characterizes essentially value properties and distinguishes this kind of ought, an ideal ought to be from any normative ought or ought to do that can be expressed in an imperative. And what this terminology of an ideal ought to be seeks to capture is the intuition that to acknowledge something to be of positive value is to acknowledge that a pro tanto merits or deserves to be or to remain instantiated, while to acknowledge something to be of negative value is to acknowledge that it, insofar as it, while to acknowledge something to be a, a negative value is to acknowledge that a pro tanto merits not to be or to remain realized. So, if you accept this, and if you are also sympathetic to these phenomenological initial claims that values can be experientially encountered as such, and sometimes in objects, um, this commits one to the conclusion that in the case of positive values, they would have to be experienced as essentially involving or co-constituted by the, the characteristic of meriting to be actual or to remain so, what would such an experience be? It's this question that Scheler thinks is answered when he says that values as values are experiences efficacious of motivating, they attract or repel. The kind of attraction or repulsion at issue here is not simply an urge-like thing, but is experiences intelligibly motivated by features of the object itself. So we might perhaps paraphrase the experiences he has in mind here when he talks about attraction or repulsion as a felt approval or disapproval of the object existing or continuing to exist qua instantiating the insofar as it instantiates the relevant positive value. And the felt approval or disapproval here, Sheila wants to say, isn't a reaction to another putatively non-valenced kind of experiential access to those values. It presents itself as an uptake, a disclosure of the object's pro tanto justified demand to be or to remain actual insofar as um, it instantiates that positive value. And 
other way around for the negative values. And it's that property of meriting to be actual that partly constitutes a positive evaluative property as such. What's the connection of this with motivation on the phenomenologist's view? Well, um, if the experience of something as positively value, valuable essentially involves something like a felt approval, Sheila calls attraction, a felt favoring, um, it's plausible to think that this experience is such as to, inherently, as to motivate other mental states, actions, or inclinations to act. My experience with a direct or imaginatively indirect of a particular painting as having a specific kind of aesthetic worth will, if taken at face value, motivate an inclination to contemplate and explore it, inclinations to protect it if I believe its existence is threatened, and so on. Um, But notice that the, the motivating powers here of the, um, of the experience um, require certain background beliefs. Um, so um, so I can, I can uh, Sheila would say, I can, uh, I can have this distinctive kind of felt approval towards the painting, which presents itself as a response to something in the painting. Um, without having any inclinations um, to, for example, protect it or, in other words, without having distinctive motivations if I don't have the relevant background beliefs. So, for example, if I think there's nothing I can do to protect that painting, for some reason I'm just incapable of doing anything, you know, I, I'm useless at this kind of thing and so on. Um, um, I mean, it would be an odd kind of belief, but it's possible to have that kind of... Sheila would say, well, that, that, that doesn't necessarily um, um, make impossible or, or, or um, rule out your um, feeling the value of the painting. So the feeling the value of the painting isn't by itself constituted by or co-constituted by, doesn't essentially involve um, um, motivations. But if there are these background beliefs, then Sheila says um, such motivations are essential to the experience of value as value in those contexts. <clears throat> um, as he puts it, when in those cases the felt, this, uh, he calls it the felt knowledge, i.e. Uh, my emotional uptake of the value in aesthetic admiration or whatever, or being moved by and so on, it, uh, determines my will immediately without the need for an intervening reflective I ought. So the relevant experience of taken at face value, given appropriate background beliefs, does involve action inclinations <clears throat> by virtue of its intuitively presented evaluative content. In that context, given these background beliefs, it can't remain motivationally inert, unlike, for example, a mere evaluative belief So if you now ask what sort of experience satisfy these requirements that the phenomenologists stipulate, presenting themselves as disclosures of values as values in objects being essentially valenced by involving this positive or negative dimension that Sheila wants to capture by the talk about attraction and repulsion, 
coming from the object or being presenting itself as a response to the object, it seems that many conscious emotions are just the sort of experiences that fit that bill. And Sheila therefore speaks of these sort of emotional experiences as feeling intuitions, um, i.e. emotional perceptions or perception derivative imaginings. Sartre says in a similar vein, my admiration, it is my admiration that has given to me, has made experientially accessible to me, the negative value baseness. My admiration that has presented, made experientially accessible, the positive value grandeur. And in these cases of emotional experience, evaluative features are given um, as attaching to the object itself, as such puts it. So there are obviously lots of questions and, and further um, clarifications that are needed here. And, and I'm just going to talk about uh, a group of, uh, actually, for, ideally, if I have time for it, four clusters of objections. Uh, I want to say quickly say something about each of those. And in the course of doing so, hopefully, the view itself will emerge more clearly um, beyond those initial characterizations. So four types of objections, well, um, first, there are phenomenological disanalogies between emotions and standard perceptual experiences that undermine the model. Uh, sorry, the, the first objection is actually that the, the picture just misdescribes emotional experience. Secondly, second type of objection, phenomenological disanalogies. Um, third type of objection, differences in rationalizing properties of emotions and standard perceptions. And fourth, fourth there just seems to be something deeply mysterious about this talk about evaluative properties um, in the way they've been characterized, and of these being directly accessible in emotional experience. Um, so the Schiller-Sartre view has it that many conscious emotions evolve an intuitive consciousness of objects as having various determinate evaluative properties. Their content is partly evaluative, and their evaluative content serves to individuate the emotion as a type. I'm using content here in, always in, this minim, in a minimal Husserlian sense, the object presented as it is presented, without further theoretical commitments, for example, the claim that the content is the structural proposition. But this idea that the content, in this minimal sense, Husserlian sense of the, the emotion is evaluative, is often challenged by critics. Um, Theona Tironi say there is no perception-like phenomenology of danger, um, and that the contents of the emotions supplied by the cognitive base, which might be a judgment or a sense perception or memory, can be adequately characterized in terms of non-evaluative properties. Evaluative properties don't figure in the content of emotions. And there are other people who argue along similar lines. Dokic and Lemaire say, it's hard to understand how qualitative feelings could present something evaluative. We have no idea of qualitative experiences presenting evaluative properties. But they do grant, Dokic and Lemaire, that it, they, conscious emotions may sometimes seem to do so. But this misleading appearance is the result of what they call informational enrichment. It's like seeming to see that a, a cooking plate is hot by seeing it reddening. Um, the heat here is not literally openly and transparently presented in or through the visual experience, although it may seem that way. 
because my cognitive state has been enriched by information supplied by other states. Let me just quickly say something about these, this first group of objections. Is the content of emotional experience evaluative? Non-evaluative, sorry. Um, this would entail that when I feel, say, aesthetically moved by a Mozart piano concerto, I'm listening to the target of my emotion, the musical the music token, is, as it's experienced in the emotion, is presented entirely in terms of those non-evaluative features, chord successions, tempi, harmonic, melodic patterns, um, on which the music's aesthetic value in this instance arguably supervenes. But Schiller responds that that can't, doesn't quite get the phenomenology right. The phenomenology isn't, so to speak, um, and just the object is just there having these non-evaluative properties, the tempi, the et cetera, et cetera. Um, when I respond to it, it with aesthetic emotion, being moved, um, because I, have a, I, can ha I can have a very distinct sense of what it is about the music that my being moved responds to without having any distinct grasp of those sub <coughs> subtending non-evaluative features. So I just experience the music as, let's say, you know, <coughs> gracefully dynamic in a certain way, um, harmoniously balanced or whatever. Um, but I'm not sure what the you know, natural, the non-evaluative features um, of the music are actually respons uh, responsible for this. Um, so I have a distinct, very distinct experience of, you would say, of, of something that I'm inclined to describe as the, you know, the powerful dynamic grace of, etc. Um, but no such distinct sense of the, the non-evaluative features. Yet if some of these non-evaluative features might be at a particular way, if the tempi were changed and so on and so on, um, the, um, the evaluative feature might change as well, the, the specific kind of beauty that the thing has might change as well. Um, but this is, I'm, not, I'm not aware that this is um, what my experience is partly due to. So my emotional response can't present itself to me as a response to those non-evaluative features. Um, I've given another example which might be um, helpful here as well. So, you know, you're in a conversation at a party, um, you're effectively put off by, let's say, something in the other person's um, behavior, which, you know, you, you, you might be inclined to describe as somehow deviously insincere or something like this. Again, it may be perfectly obvious to me what my experience is picking up on here. It's the devious insincerity of this behavior. Um, but without you being able to pinpoint the non-evaluative features of the expressive behavior on which this apparent devious insincerity supervenes. There are such features, you know, the, you know people tell us, for example, the, um, there are certain typical differences between, for instance, um, pretended um, facial expressions or affective facial, facial expressions. The person may pretend to be you know, smiling at you in a friendly manner, um, but doesn't do so. It's actually a pretend smile. It's a false smile. And there are typical features that distinguish false smiles from 
genuine ones, um, different activation of muscle groups, etc., more abrupt onset. Um, but you're not aware of any of those. Um, you have no distinct awareness of these, of these natural features. But what you do have a distinct awareness of is it's deviously insincere, or it seems to you that way in your experience. Very quickly on the, the enrichment point, um, the, um, the reddening cooking plates, <clears throat> which seems to, to be hot in, ex in your experience of it, um, you, know, you look at it, it seems hot. Dokic and Lemaire say, well, the, con <clears throat> the content hot here is not supplied by the experience, but by another component of the subject's mental st state. Now, th there are two ways of reading that. Either um, it has as a background an enabling condition um, certain previous encounters with the thing or certain judgments that then somehow infuse or penetrate your future experiences of that type of thing, um, which is roughly Husserl's idea of sedimentation. So um, the contents of previous experiences can become sedimented in subsequent experiences, such that the thing immediately strikes me as being a certain way. Um, but in that case, that um, content really is part of the experience's content in the case of sedimentation. But a diff they might have a different point in mind the critics, they might say it's actually a different, um, the content hot when you see the red in cooking plate is actually supplied by a different component of your total mental state at the time, let's say a judgment. Um, and I think that this is difficult to reconcile with the phenomenon of recalcitrant emotion previously mentioned. So in recalcitrant emotion, you consciously and confidently judge at the time that the object doesn't have the evaluative property that your emotion presents it as having, which is what invites the analogy with perceptual illusion. You know, I may have come to a settled view that physical accomplishments are utterly worthless, and yet when witnessing a gymnastics competition, you're struck by admiration or with admiration for those feats which seem to you quite terrific. And you might, of course, say there is a, in this case, ah, um, so, you know, the, the, the content doesn't seem to be supplied by a judgment because your judgment here is actually in conflict with what your experience still presents as, as was seeming to be the case. And you might, of course, say, well, perhaps there's an unconscious belief here contradicting your consciously held judgment. Um, <clears throat> and I, d I don't think that might work here in this case, um, whatever it's <clears throat> this response, whatever it's virtues, it might be elsewhere, because what we're trying to explain is how your emotional experience can appear to be value-presenting. So we are trying to account for a phenomenal difference between an emotion and an affectively neutral experience. And that phenomenal difference can't be explained by an act or a content that's phenomenally unconscious. Um, second cluster of objections to the perceptual view. Um, it's widely held that perceptual experiences are transparent. When you try to characterize the phenomenal character, the what is likeness, 
of the visual experience of a particular scene, you need to mention properties of the perceived scene. And on a strong version of the thesis, there's nothing beyond those properties of the latter, seen from a particular point of view and under specific conditions, that goes to make up the fundamental character of the visual experience. On a weaker version, at least the core of the phenomenology is constituted by properties of the scene perceived. And that seems very different from the phenomenology of emotions. Um, Dionne the felt quality of fear isn't clearly perceived, experienced by us as a feature of the spider that frightens us. Um, if you had to describe how it feels to be frightened by a spider, you wouldn't do so in terms of the spider's qualities. Now, in order to somewhat neutralize this point, um, although not entirely, um, as we'll see, um, you should recall that the, the Shailor Sartre view isn't committed to the claim that all the basic case emotions, remember basic case, case are those in which they, the particular target is itself directly presented, um, only or primarily present apparent value features of their objectual targets. Many emotion types, and fear is a case in point, have self-referential components. <clears throat> they, they include an awareness of the subject of the experience. I mean, typically, it's fear about yourself rather than fear for another. Um, they include an awareness of the subject of the experience under an evaluative aspect. Um, if any emotions can be plausibly construed on the perceptual model, there would have to be emotions that aren't obviously self-referential in this way. So. The, the typical examples which are favored by um, certainly Scheler um, are things like the following. You're awed by the grandeur of a natural scenery. Um, you're indignant about a malicious remark about another person that you overhear. Um, you admire the justice of an action that you witness. You feel pity for a person in, se in severe mental distress, a person that you see being in severe mental distress. So what these cases have in common is that they typically don't include a self-referential component in the above sense. And they are what Scheler calls psychic, seelische emotions, mental states which a subject can experience without he claims anyway, without undergoing any distinctive somatic feelings or other bodily responses. They may be associated with a somatic phenomenology, when, when you feel ready to upbraid the person making the malicious remark, but they don't need to be. So it's possible that your belief that you're just totally incapable of helping the distressed person penetrates your experience in such a way that you feel no inclination to intervene. And it's just implausible to say that in that case your experience couldn't any longer be one of pity. But aren't these sorts of emotions opaque in a way that sense perceptions are not? The value-bearing components being not features of the object, but distinctly non-intentional subjective qualia, say non-somatic feelings of pleasure, displeasure or something. Um, Sheila takes a lot of time rejecting that um, phenomenological description. He says, um, for example, the value quality here is not um, had by uh, a non-intentional feeling state or a relation to some such state, 
like a, a quale, just as the quality blue when looking at a blue object is not a visual sensation or the relation to some such sensation state. So when you try to adequately characterize the value component of the kind of emotions you're considering, you can't do so without adverting to apparent value features of the object. And that's what the point with the blue object, the blue flower or whatever is the analogy is meant to convey. You can't characterize a putative sense perception as of a blue flower without reference to a color property the object appears as having. But there's still a crucial difference between these sorts of emotions and ordinary perceptions. And this might be thought to vindicate that transparency objection, after all, like other emotions, those psychic emotions are valenced. Um, they essentially involve what Shaler calls attraction or repulsion. Um, what I've paraphrased as felt approval or disapproval. But these are clearly attitudes. And insofar as a part of the phenomenal character of the emotion, that character includes components that are not properties of the emotional target. So even if I were to reject a strong transparency account of sense perception, holds that the phenomenal character of sense perceptual experience also includes attitudes such as expectations, there, remains, there would remain an important difference. Standard perceptions don't include valenced attitudes. Um, now the response which might be available here to the Sheila Sartre view is that this difference doesn't show that emotions can't be perceptions, rather it's due to the distinctive nature of their content and the manner of access to it, namely to the fact that emotional content involves value properties, experientially given as such. And recall that for something to be a positive value property is for it to merit or protanto to be or to remain realized, instantiated. So an experiential encounter with that property as such would therefore require an experiential registering of that aspect of it. It would need to present itself as an uptake of the value's merit, you might say, which makes it a positive, it's justified demand to be realized, which makes it, or to remain so, if it's a positive value, which makes it a positive value in the first place. And Sheila's contention is that that's just what this valenced attitudinal component in, for example, aesthetic admiration um, presents itself as. It presents itself as an uptake of that value property of the object. But can a, such a valence attitudinal response presents itself in this way as appropriate in the sense of serving to disclose a value property of the object rather than merely as caused or motivated by something in the object. Since I want to move on, I'll just leave that hanging for the moment, this question. I mean, Sheila, in order to demonstrate his point here, as often uses contrasting cases. Um, so he says, you know, compare your indignation at a brutal mugging. I mean, you see somebody in the street beating up a child. Um, and you respond to it in this kind of with, you know, repulsion or this felt disapproval. Um, compare that, for example, with a case of, um, um, let's say, snapping in anger at, you know, at a friend because you've been irritable all day and the person's made an innocent remark. Um, or um, a case of aggressive envy, you know, where you dislike somebody for having certain virtues 
or excellences that you don't have uh, or feel you don't have. Um, again, Sheila would say in these cases, in the case of aggressive envy, um, your experience is motivated by, experience by your, your emotion, is experiences involving this dislike, is experiences motivated by the object but not merited by the object. Um, so there's a phenological difference here. And, and so between emotions presenting themselves as merely motivated by an object and those presenting themselves as, as merited by the object, as, as a intelligibly motivated by the object, as an uptake of something in the object. Um, okay, so um, not sure how much I have time to say on this particular point. So, further putative difference, phenomenological difference. Um, emotions aren't independent way of accessing the objects that exemplify those properties, if indeed they do. Um, um, and that distinguishes them from sense perception. So in order to hear a remark as malicious, um, your affective response doesn't by itself give you access to the object. Um, you, know, you need to hear the remark. You need to have a sensory take on it first in order to even individuate the particular target. Um, So, is this a worry? Does this tell against the perceptual analogy? Um, not necessarily, I think. I mean, there is a problem here for the Sheila Sartre view in that um, you might say, okay, values are higher order properties. And, and um, you know, many of these um, arguably can feature in sense experience as well. So, um, you know, you can see something as a TV screen or you can, or a washing machine or as a chessart tree. Um, but the problem here is that, that it's, it has we're two different kind of perceptual, if we stay with the perceptual basic case, two different perceptual modalities seem to be involved. There's the auditory modality and there is the, the affective modality. And both, Shannon Sartre want to say, are essential to the emotion here. Um, so the affective perception of the value would be a dependent kind of perception in that way and being dependent on another modality of access to the object. Um, I think that this counts only as an objection to the perceptual account if there is reason to think that there is something inherently problematic about the idea of dependent perception in that sense. I think this is not as obvious as the critics take it to be. So absent such an, an independent argument, the supporter of the view could say, um, kind of innocence by association, there seem to be other non-affective modes of apparently directly accessing or experience that are similarly dependent. You hear the person next to you uttering the string of sound, it's raining outside. And it seems to you that this gives you direct access to the meaning of, or at least to the utterance's meaningfulness at the very least. It, it appears to you as a meaningful utterance. Um, so whatever that 
experience of meaning, as it's sometimes called, is, um, it's not identical with your sensory uptake of the sounds. So it's a, it, on this example, I mean, if you accept the example, it would be a, a dependent mode in the relevant sense of, of, of uh, direct access, experiential access. Um, or the, another example would be Husserl's idea of, of properties as multiply exemplifiable, properties as properties, being perceivable, as he puts it, um, intuitively, he means it quite literally, on the basis of intuiting particulars, having those properties. Um, again, this would be, and if he calls it a founded mode of perception. There may be something wrong with this idea, but it's not obviously wrong, and I think an independent argument would be needed. Different rationalizing properties. Um, do emotions, emotional experiences, and standard uncontroversial cases of perception have different rationalizing properties? Um, okay, for, for, for that, you need, <laughs> clearly, I need to say something about um, what's involved here. Um, in, I mean, the, in the, the justifying role of perceptual experience. Now, the general sort of, and again, start with a sort of general phenomenological picture of the classical phenomenologists, the general sort of approach that they favored was that perceptual experiences can, in the right circumstances, immediately justify corresponding perceptual just judgments. For example, your perceptual experience, as of wet ground under your feet, can immediately justify the judgment that the ground here is wet. So that's to say that I don't give and giving, reason, giving reasons for your judgment, the ground is wet, you don't need to appeal to other beliefs, such as beliefs about putative causal relations between your experience and some worldly state or event. If the relevant portion of the world is as it appears to be in your perceptual experience, perceptual experience is always used I mean, like, for, for, as well, for the good and the bad case. I mean, it's used in this non-factive way as here. If you don't like that, you could replace it by perceptual or quasi-perceptual. Anyway, if the relevant portion of the world is as it appears to be in your perceptual experience, there's no reason to think that your cognitive system is malfunctioning and simply appealing to what the experience appears, has disclosed, or appears to disclose will suffice for justification of my judgment that the ground is wet. Now, the reason why, I mean, just one further bit of the, the general phenomenological picture here, the reason why that's possible um, Husserl thinks it's because in perceptual experience, if it's a, a good case, a genuine case of, of perception, um, just as something that seems like a perception, the object itself is present, selbstgegeben, he says, in propria persona, in the experience. Okay. Um, now, the Shailas view has that, that are some emotional experiences that can similarly count as direct disclosures of evaluative facts or evaluative properties instantiating in, in, instantiated in the world, such that the latter can be are present in the experience itself. And of course, the most promising candidates for these are the basic case psychic emotions, which I mentioned earlier, uh, where the target of the emotion, its particular object, is itself perceptually given. So, objections. Um, 
Well, even here there are clearly epistemic disanalogies which undermine the model. First, it seems that these emotions can be assessed for rationality in a way that perceptual experiences cannot. It makes no sense, even if you're suffering from sense perceptual illusion, it makes no sense to ask why, why are you having that experience in a normative sense? You can ask it in an explanatory sense. What explains you having that, but not in a normative sense. Um, but when somebody feels overwhelmed by a natural scenery, it, I can meaningfully ask, why are you feeling that way? What's so grand about that? Um, second, it seems, unlike sense perceptual experience, um, <laughs> appealing to emotion never seems to settle um, the question, you know, why do you believe that um, on the basis of your experience? It's very rarely, if ever, sufficient to answer the normative question, why do you believe that his state is pitiable, by responding, because I feel it. Um, and third, it's been argued not, that not only emo can emotions not supply sufficient reasons, they can't provide any justifying reasons at all. And this is because for an emotion to be justified, it needs to be an appropriate response to the targeted state of affairs, so the argument goes. But if the emotional experience itself could provide reasons or evidence for judging that the state of affairs does involve some value or other, does it include, instantiate some value or other, then the mere occurrence of the emotion would supply reasons for thinking that it, that very emotion, is appropriate. But that's just immensely implausible. So I think the, the Shayla Sartre view can diffuse these worries, um, or at least it has resources. So the key to the first objection um, is, yes, we, we often do ask normative why questions about emotions, um, but that can be explained by the fact that the content of the emotions are higher order properties. Um, so we can be in doubt whether some of the relevant lower level properties really are instantiated in this instance. And that's what we're asking about. So when you say, you know, when you say that scenery is grand, or you know, his state is pitiable, or that action is cruel, um, why are you judging that um, um, on the basis of your emotion? Um, what we're asking, what we're doubting, whether some of the relevant lower level properties really are instantiated. Um, and that also explains the, the second difference um, pointed out by the critics. You're not normally satisfied when, in reply to your question, why do you believe his remark was malicious, we received the answer, because I could feel it. Um, that's certainly true, but nor does the response I could see it, settle the matter when we ask for somebody's reason for judging that a smile he perceived was a false smile, judging that on the basis of his experience. We can ask, you know, why, um, why should that be a false smile? Mm -hmm. And what we're asking, so the, 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 there's, the, there's quite a, a close parallel then, the, 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 um, once we acknowledge that values are sort of higher order properties somehow dependent on 
usually very complex lower order properties. Okay, um, let me say something. I mean, I won't say very, just five minutes perhaps on, I won't say something here on the, the, the third objection. Um, um, I have to pass that over and, and move to the final um, set of queries, which actually are not um, very much discussed in the literature on the perceptual model at all. Um, what would it be for value properties to be instantiated in objects or events or other persons such that they might be affectively perceivable as evaluative properties had by those objects? Um, now, the classical expositions have something to say on it, but in a quite gestural way. So, again, what I say here has to remain gestural and needs further developing, but at least I suggest a direction that one might go. Um, so a positive value property is a property that's inherently such as to pro tanto to merit, <coughs> to make a justified demand to be or to remain realized. And such properties, as it's often been remarked, are metaphysically distinctly odd. How could a property make demands? Um, so to make some sense of this, or at least to come up with some cases where it doesn't seem to be that mysterious, um, recall, recall some of the target objects of Shaler's psychic emotions. I'm indignant not about a malicious remark. You admire the justice of an action. If you pity for a person's severe mental distress. In the basic cases, that's in, you know, when being in, in direct perceptual contact, sense perceptual contact um, with the target. But in all these cases, the target object itself, I mean, you might say, can you be in sense perceptual contact? Yeah, this is just the pro problem. Because in all these cases, the target object itself is or includes a conscious mental state. Um, so you admire, I mean, you know, the, the injustice of the action includes, if it is an action, a mental state, a certain kind of intention, and so on. Um, but perhaps these kind of cases might give us some take on what it might be for a value property to be instantiated in the first place. Because it's relatively uncontroversial <coughs> that conscious mental states can be intrinsically valuable, or at least that's a widely accepted view. Classical utilitarians think that experiences of pleasure instantiate intrinsic value. You might add that that depends what the pleasure is about. For Kantians, the good will, qua conscious mental act, which a person determines herself on the basis of the categorical imperative is intrinsically valuable. So what would that mean? I mean, applying this, this characterization of, of value properties to these cases, um, we would have to say that if the intrinsic positive value, let's say, of the pleasure of the goodwill, is itself experienced by the subject, then given the characterization of value properties, these mental states would have to be experienced by the subject as meriting to remain actualized. Um, the pleasure experienced as positively valuable would have to be experienced as a pleasure that ought to go on. Um, the Kantian goodwill, similarly, as making a demand on the future, as Sartre puts it, as making a justified demand 
on the subject to continue to be motivated by it. And this seems phenologically apt. Insofar as one experiences one's state of pleasure as positively valuable, one experience it, experiences it as something that ought to go on, as meriting continuation. The same goes for experiencing one's being motivated by the categorical imperative as a good thing. Um, now, it's an interesting question. So what, what is the affective dimension here of experiencing? I mean, after all, the claim was that it's only this affective dimension that gives you the experience of the thing as value, rather than just I mean, like a, an empty judgment. And you might perhaps say, in the normal case, this might just be, at the unreflective level, experiencing the pleasure is a good thing, and that meaning experiencing it as something that ought to go on, might just be described as a contented acquiescence, perhaps. Um, I mean, a lot more needs to be said on this, and, and I'm happy to come back in discussion. Um, so anyway, so that gives us some take on the first part of the question here, um, namely, can we think of any instances where it's uncontroversially the case or relatively uncontroversially the case that something actually is experienced as valuable, as having those properties as they've, um, um, as they've been characterized. Now, Sheila's psychic emotions, as we saw, are often typically, in fact, directed at intentional objects that are or include conscious, not always, often me conscious mental states of others. And this commits the Sheila Sartre view to the thesis that in the basic and successful case of this sort of experience, emotional experience, the value properties of others' mental states are affectively perceived through these emotions directed at them. I perceive the specific value of another's just decision in admiration, or the disvalue of his malice in indignation, or the disvalue of his distress in pity. And this requires on the account of given earlier that relevant lower order properties of their mental states are also directly present in those basic cases I perceptually disclosed. Now the idea that mental states of others can be perceived in this way is also a core theme of classical phenomenology, first articulated by Husserl and then taken up by Erich Stein and by Scheler. And the claim is that in some contexts conscious mental states of other people are perceptually accessible in perceiving their expressive behavior. Sheila says, it seems to us that we directly grasp, we have, as he puts it, have present to us another's joy in his smile, his distress or pain in his tears, his shame in his blushing. And if it's replied that this is not perception because it cannot be such, then I would ask the objector to compare such cases with those in which there is, in fact, what he tends to suppose here too, namely a demonstrable inference. But unfortunately, this argument doesn't give Sheila what he needs. For a belief might be phenologically immediate, um, or an experience, um, well, sorry, an experience without, without being, um, a belief may be phenologically immediate without being epistemically such. What is needed to show that beliefs about other people's mental states can be both immediately and rationally grounded in the content of perceptual experience is the idea that the other's mental state in such cases is not, or not always, not in the successful case, a distinct existence from the directly given expressive behavior. 
merely contingently linked with it. For otherwise my perceptual experience wouldn't give me direct access, perceptual access to that mental state, but only something causally linked to it. In fact, that's exactly the position that is defended by Edith Stein in her problem, The Problem of Empathy, when she says, the facial express expression is the external aspect of the grief. Both form a natural unity. Fear is one thing with the cry of fear, just as the grief is with facial expression. If one were to grant this, I, if I were to grant that this can indeed be the case, that in, you know, the, there, there's no as well, ontological distinction between the expressive behavior and the, the um, you know, different items, ontological items, and the, the fear or the grief, still doesn't seem to get enough. It doesn't seem to be enough to get the Sheila Sartre view off the hook. From the present account, I, when I try to explain a uh, relatively uncontroversial example of what it might be to experience an evaluative property as such, um, on that account, you're assuming that the evaluative features of the other's mental state that you affectively perceive in indignation or admiration or pity belong to the experiential dimension of that mental state. They belong to what it's like for the other to be in that state. But surely it may be said what it's like for the other to be in pain cannot be directly given to me in my perception of his pain behavior, even if that pain behavior is part of the other's token mental state that is his pain. And for the Shailas attribute to go through, it needs to deny this. The advocate of the view has to say that the experienced first personal dimension of the other's distress, or of his just decision, or of his malice, can be part of the content of my perceptual experience of its behavioral expression. And the problem is just how to make good that claim. And I'm happy to say something about their attempts to do that in the discussion, but I've, I think I've talked for long enough, so I should probably stop here. <laughs> Thank you.